Hello everyone, this is Jerome. I serve as a community pastor here at First Christian Church. Welcome to our brand new podcast. I'm so glad that we get to serve you today through this message. God bless you. Let's get into the Word. Let's, uh, let's thank Maddie again for filling in and helping us out today. We're in a journey together as the family of God here at FCC called Like Jesus. And we're trying to go back to the Gospels especially and just pay closer attention to who this guy was and how he lived and the things that he taught and, and the, the deep things that he stood for that he wanted the people of his own time to understand and build into their own lives. And so at this point in our journey, we are noticing... Jesus' interaction with God's Word. And the thing that we want to look at this morning together is the fact that even Jesus trusted God's Word. He trusted the Scriptures. And He used them all the time in His teaching and His dealings with people. In fact, He never just said His own thing. It was always rooted and grounded somewhere in the Scriptures. And you get the impression that he believed they were true, right? Have you ever wondered if Jesus really believed the Scriptures? No, he did. I mean, he trusted them. So, that kind of begs the question, what about you and me? Do you, do I trust the Scriptures? Do you believe that they are trustworthy and true? You know, I'm, I'm kind of a, a natural skeptic, and I don't believe anything I hear. I don't believe anything I see anymore because of Photoshop. And you just, you know, you have to, you kind of have to dig down and, and do some investigation and some research, which is a gigantic pain. I mean, who has time for that, Right? But if you really want to know the truth, you can't just accept everything you hear and everything you see. So, <clears throat> I uh, was thinking about this. Okay, Jesus trusted the Scriptures, but can I trust the Scriptures? Can you? So, I thought we would just take an academic moment here before we get into our story and talk about this question. And in your sermon notes which I know you all have out, pens in hand, because you avidly take notes. You know, you're hanging on every word I say. I know that every, every week. So, John, quit laughing at me. So, uh, these, there are four questions that we have to ask when we talk about the integrity of the Scriptures. Um, and the first one is this. Does the Bible pass the test for integrity for any other ancient document, does it pass the test that we put any ancient document through in order to decide if we can trust it, if it's, uh, if it, if it's good, if we trust what it says? And so when you're answering that question, one thing when it comes to ancient documents that you have to discover is how many manuscripts or copies of this ancient document do we have? Because most ancient documents, we don't have the original of any of them. We do not have, as far as we know, the original 
manuscript of any of the New Testament books. But we do have copies. In fact, we have 5,686 copies or fragments or portions of the New Testament. Now, I want you to pay attention to that number. Notice I didn't say, oh, we have, we have tons of manuscripts of the New Testament, or we have thousands. This is very specific. We know exactly how many we have. 5,686. Say it with me. 5,686. This is not just some game we're playing. We're serious about understanding if our New Testament is something that we can have faith in. Now, all of the New Testament books were written before 70 A.D., we're pretty sure. Um, and just a, just a side commercial note here. It's interesting, not a single one of them mentioned the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. If they had written after that event, they would have talked about it for sure. Because that, that changed the course of history for every single Jew. Um, so the next question you ask, in addition to the number of copies or surviving manuscripts, is the time gap between when we're sure the original was written, like before 70 A.D., and the first surviving copies of it. What's the time gap there? For the New Testament, it's 25 years. 25 years after we know John, for example, wrote his gospel, we have some copies of his gospel called the John Ryland's Fragments. It's amazing. Now, <clears throat> how does the New Testament compare to some other ancient books that nobody questions? How many of you had to read the Iliad and the Odyssey in school? Written by who? Do you remember? Homer. Homer. Not, you know, Homer, the family guy, Homer. But, uh, so, yeah, we all love the Iliad and the Odyssey, right? We had no idea what that guy was talking about. But it's a classic. The earliest surviving manuscript of Homer dates 500 years after Homer lived and wrote. 500 years. What about Plato? Anybody into Plato? Yeah, Gerald, he's got... If you want to know about Plato, ask Gerald. Right there, this guy. That'll be fun. 1,200 years after Plato wrote and lived is, do we have any surviving manuscripts of his stuff? Or Caesar, who wrote the Gallic Wars. A thousand-year gap between when he lived and wrote and our earliest surviving manuscript. The New Testament stacks up I mean, its credibility is incomparable to any other ancient work that's not even questioned. All of the New Testament documents were cited or quoted by three ancient writers, Clement, who lived in 95 A.D., Ignatius, who lived in 107 A.D., and Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John, who lived in 110 A.D., People, this is less than 100 years after the time 
that all of our New Testament documents were written. And we can reconstruct most of them simply from the quotations and the citations of these three historians. Pretty incredible. What about the nature of the New Testament documents? Do they agree? Do they all tell the same story? Well, you tell me. Have you read your New Testament? Let's take the Gospel writers. They're all telling the same story, aren't they? Yeah, it's, it's incredible. And then Paul, James, Peter, who wrote later, just verify this common theme that runs through the Bible. What about the authenticity? Are the documents authentic? Now, that question means, were they written by the dude that claims to have written them? In other words, was Matthew really written by Matthew, or did some imposter just use his name so everybody would pick up his book at the bookstore? Um, the Gospels and the letters in the New Testament talk about things that only an eyewitness would know. Or someone like Luke, who wasn't an eyewitness, but he interviewed eyewitnesses. Also, they seem to be independent reporters uh, who corroborate each other. They tell the same story, but from their own angle, and there's enough agreement that we can verify whether what they said was true, but there's enough disparity, enough difference to show that they didn't just copy each other. Pretty amazing. What about this question, the third question, are the documents historically and geographically accurate? This is a really fun one for me. Think about your Bible. And if you've read it recently, just think about the number of, the, of names of historical figures like kings and governors and officials and even religious leaders. In the New Testament alone, there's at least 30 of those people that are mentioned by the New Testament writers. And then things like customs and religion and currency and clothing, even food, even animals that were part of their life, agriculture, all these things are verified by secular history. In other words, other ancient writers that are non-biblical, that weren't writers of the Bible, all verify what the Bible talks about. And then we have geographical locations. This is quite interesting. The names of countries and cities, villages, mountains, rivers. And Bruce Boris was talking to me after first service, and he said, you know, I even thought of the names of trees, like the Oak of Mamre, where Abraham did something. The name of the cave where his bones were put. The names of rocks. I mean, all of these kinds of things are quite amazing. And if you want to verify that, guess what? All the geography, you can go there today and visit all of these places. They're still, they're still there. Um, here's something that, the, that uh, Luke put in his gospel in Luke chapter 3 that's pretty interesting. He wants us to know exactly when what he's about to tell us took place. And here it is, Luke chapter 3, right at the beginning, the first couple of verses. And we have a slide for that. There it is. All right, check this out. Luke says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, 
and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, think about this with me. If Luke was just making up a fantastic fable about the life of Jesus, why in the world would he put his account in the crosshairs of history? Where everything he says, you can either verify or pick apart. He wanted us to know that what he was going to tell us about Jesus was grounded in time and space and that it was true. Pretty amazing. There were at least 10 non-Christian writers who lived within 150 years of Jesus who give us information about him that's all consistent with what we find in the New Testament. All right, so there's all this stuff that we can verify that gives us confidence in the documents of the New Testament. But what about the stuff the New Testament talks about that is not verifiable, like the Holy Spirit living inside of you, or this thing called salvation, or even the idea of heaven, or the concept of sanctification. I mean, we, those are sort of personal experience things we can't verify. So what do we do with those? Well, here's, here's what I do with those. I'm the skeptic. I'm the guy who may not believe everything you tell me until I check it out. When what can be verified is accurate, then what cannot be verified is trusted. If you are a credible witness and you tell me about some things about your personal experience, if what you have told me that's verifiable has turned out to be true, I'm probably going to believe you when you tell me about something personal that I can't verify simply because of your character. And then we have the innumerable cases of radically changed lives that give credibility to, to what the Bible claims. And honestly, people, this is one of the things that keeps me going here at FCC is because I know you. And I know your stories. And I know who you used to be because you've told me your stories. And I know who you are now. And it is something that just does not happen apart from the intervention of some kind of outside power. And some of you, I knew when you were your old self, and I know you now. And the, the testimony of life change is something that is absolutely fantastic and in my mind gives credibility to the Scriptures, helps me know that I can trust them. All right. Jesus trusted the Scriptures. I believe that we can trust the Scriptures too. Let's go to our story now and see how he did that, what it was that he believed that helped him in his everyday life encounters with people and with skeptics. So our story today is in Matthew chapter 22, and the heading in your New Testament will say probably marriage at the resurrection. I want to submit to you that that's not really what this story is about, although Jesus does give us some some information about marriage at the resurrection. It's not really the main point. So listen to the story. See if you can, can uh, put your finger on 
what it is that he is getting at and what it is that he wants us to know. All right, um, <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, we're going to share your story, and we want to honor you in how we handle it. And we trust that you will speak to us and that you'll do something in every one of us this, this morning through your story. We ask this in your name we pray. Right on. So Matthew says, that same day, I wonder what day that was. Okay, commercial break. This is Passion Week. All right? I believe that our story takes place on Monday. Yesterday, on Sunday, Jesus has entered Jerusalem, the triumphal entry on the colt of a donkey for the final time. Remember, he went right to the temple, cleared the temple of all the money changers, accused his own people of turning the house of God into a den of thieves and said, this should be a house of prayer for the nations. And then he began to teach the people all day in the temple. And some of those stories we have dealt with in the past two or three weeks. Then Sunday night, he goes to Bethany. He spends the night at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus probably. Monday morning, he's back in the temple. He's teaching. He's just told the story of the great banquet. And um, all these stories now, until his crucifixion, are stories that are in the face of the Jews. They're all about his own people and their rejection of their Messiah. So he's teaching in the temple. And Matthew says that same day, so we're on Monday today, on that same day, the Sadducees came to Jesus with a question. The Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. All right, I, I, another commercial break. I can't resist this. So, why were the Sadducees... Why... Uh, how did the Sadducees get their name? Sadducee, does anybody know? They did not believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. Okay, you guys know I'm a sucker for dad jokes, and um, I get, uh, part of it is I just like to hear you groan and see the eye rolls. All right, moving along. So the Sadducees, who do not believe in the resurrection, came to Jesus with the question, Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children that his wife should be given to his brother so he can raise up offspring for him. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, his wife was given to his brother. The same thing happened to him and to the third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be since they were all married to her? And they thought, all right, we've got him now. And Jesus <laughs> responded, you are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. 
Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus said, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard his teaching, they were astonished. Wow. Jesus is amazing, isn't he? Let's go back through this. This is a, this is a pretty easy story to remember. Let's just go back through it, make sure we don't miss any details. So, that same day, what, what same day is Matthew talking about? Probably Monday, although he doesn't say it, but the same day that what goes before had just happened in the temple courts, uh, this group came to Jesus with the question, who were they? And what was it that they did not believe? They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they came to Jesus with a question, teacher, they said, and then what was their question? Do you remember? They said, somebody told us, who? Moses said, if a man dies and he has no, then what should happen? How do we fix that problem? His wife gets, yeah, whether she wants to or not. Can you imagine living in that culture? How many of you women know your brother-in-law? Okay. Aren't you glad you live today and not back then? So anyway, this poor gal. <clears throat> so the first brother-in-law, what happened to him? He died, and did they have any kids? So then she went to the second, and the right on down to the, man, that poor woman. So they say, now, at the resurrection, here's our problem, here's our question. What was it? Whose wife will she be? Because they were all married to her. And uh, so Jesus right off starts with pointing out their problem. And it's, it's twofold. What, what did he say? You are in error because you don't know the Scriptures and or the power of God. Wow. And... Uh, so he said, oh, and I, I think I skipped this in telling the story. He says, at the resurrection, people will neither marry or be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Yeah. And then he says, haven't you read what somebody said to you? Who was that? God himself. And then he quotes from the Old Testament. And he says, this is God speaking. God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus' commentary on that for their time was what? He makes a comment about God. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And that was it. And the crowds were astonished. The Sadducees were sad, you see. 
<clears throat> so I was thinking about this, and I thought, wow, we do exactly the same thing as these Sadducees did. And I want to walk you through the litmus test for identifying a Sadducee. And this exercise is really a look in the mirror for every single one of us. And I want you to think about yourself and what your tendencies are. Try not to point the finger, even if it's just mentally, at someone that you know or elbow the person sitting next to you. Let's just go down through this. Here's the first question. Do I object to what the Scriptures say? Why can I discern my own motives? Am I honest enough and personally reflective enough to put my finger on why I object to something that the Scriptures teach? And if you're able to do that, you will have a come-to-Jesus moment. It's only in those moments when we're able to be honest about who we really are that God is able to come in and help us deal with those issues. Here's the second question. Do I contrive unrealistic or even extreme hypothetical situations to support my objections? Anybody? We had one gal this morning, Sister Jennifer, that actually raised her hand and said, yep, that's me, I do. Sometimes we come up with the most extreme, wildest, hypothetical, unrealistic situations to support our objections. Situations that would hardly ever happen. It's like, well, what if, and then... And it's so far-fetched that it's, it's really a logical fallacy. But we go to, we do all, play all kinds of mental and psychological gymnastics to keep from believing what we don't want to believe sometimes. That's what these Sadducees did. They invented a hypothetical situation. Seven brothers, really? And this poor gal was married to every single one of them? I mean... Question number three, do I appeal to current popular thought and practice which is contrary to biblical morality as a reason to disregard biblical claims and teaching? Now that, that question is kind of a mouthful, but it's printed so you can refer to it again. I think we do that all the time. In fact, current popular thought right now out in society is in conflict with the Scriptures in many, many areas. And it puts us in a difficult position a lot of times. I'm just going to rattle off four of those areas right now just to make us all more uncomfortable than we already are. But welcome to FCC, where we refuse to put our heads in the sand and just have our irrelevant party together in our building and not deal with what's going on. So, here's one area where current popular thought is in complete um, 
conflict with what the scriptures teach. And it is the, the area of abortion or the idea of the sanctity of life. So we play all kinds of ridiculous mental gymnastics to try to define when life begins. Or we create ridiculous hypothetical situations that hardly ever happen, maybe sometimes, in order to justify the whole idea of abortion. Here's another one. The, the, uh, the whole area of homosexuality. <clears throat> and um, what current popular thought says in our society, what the scriptures teach, are just completely at odds with each other. So what are we going to do? Do we explain away the scriptures and do a bunch of theological gymnastics, which happens all the time, to explain away what was clearly said or written, or do we grapple with this problem? Now, I, I want you to know that at FCC, we are not a place of judgment. We are not a place of segregation into the holier and the less than holy. We are a bunch of jacked up people with all of whom have our own sins and issues that we're dealing with, and we are trying to support each other to follow Jesus together. Okay? Regardless of whether you have a same-sex attraction or whether you're sleeping with someone that you're not married to, you know, we, we defer to what the Scriptures teach, but then we try to follow the second greatest commandment according to Jesus, which says, love your neighbor as yourself. And his teaching about don't judge or you too will be judged. And how dare you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't take out the log that's in your own. That's who we are learning to become at FCC. I want you all to know this is a safe place. Most of you have experienced that this is a safe place. We are full of people at FCC who never ever thought God would be interested in them, let alone his people. And they're finding a home here where they aren't judged. We don't have all the answers, but we're trying to figure that out. And at FCC, we will defer to what the Scriptures teach, but we will also try to answer the why question. Listen, it is not enough for you to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Don't ever say that. Don't say it around me. Okay? You'll hear about it. All that does is alienate you from people and and enables them to put a big giant label in bold face letters across your head that says radical religious freak. Okay? We do believe that when God says something, that settles it. But we care enough to try to answer the why he said that question and help each other through some of these difficult issues. Here's another area. Gender. The sanctity of the male-female complementary roles. And what the Bible teaches, what popular thought teaches, are completely contrary. Or the whole sexual act that the Bible says is reserved for the marriage relationship. And that it's wrong for us. Listen, we are not built emotionally and psychologically to breed like animals with whoever we want. We are designed for commitment, for the safety of a committed 
relationship, and the sex act goes deep down into our souls. It is not just a physical thing. And that's why the Bible teaches that we actually become one as male and female with each other when that happens. But that's not what you're hearing out there. So anyway, just to name four, do we appeal to popular thought and practice, which is contrary to biblical morality, as a reason to disregard biblical claims and teaching? Do we do that? I think we do it all the time. And I'm just calling us out about that today. But the real questions, the bottom line for Jesus, I believe, in this story that I have separated into two questions for us today is this. Do I know the Scriptures? Do I know the Scriptures well enough to be convinced that what I believe and what I'm committed to is the right thing? And secondly, do I know the power of God? Have I experienced the power of God in my life? Now, listen, I believe that the reason many of us don't really believe what the Scriptures teach is because we have never let God into our lives enough to experience His power. And people, listen, when you experience His power in your life, you will believe what He says. If you really want to experience God, if you really want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. You have to obey Jesus' call to follow Him, to trust Him, to obey Him, and let go of always wanting to have control, of only depending on yourself. Do you know the Scriptures? And do you know the power of God? Have you experienced His power in your life? And when you do, it will be easy for you to believe Him and follow Him. Okay, so that's our story. I'm curious about what's going on in your hearts and minds right now. We're going to take a couple of minutes, go to the mic, and we do this. If you're new at FCC, we're trying to be a little vulnerable and um, create an opportunity for all of us so that you don't just come and face forward for an hour on Sunday and go home. What does God tell you through this story? What is it? Did you have a light bulb moment? as we went through the story today, or maybe even share something that happened in your connection group this week as you learned the story together. Gerald. Pastor, it's more of a decoration. This is my Bible. I am who it says I am. I can do what it says I can do. And this is the instruction manual for my life. Right on, Gerald. Thank you for your confidence. And that comes from a, from a man who is going through it in life and trying to trust Jesus every minute of every day. Right on. Anybody else? What happened in you through this story today? Tambra. 
The story reminded me of when I gave my life to Christ. Um, we were Pentecostal in a Pentecostal church, and you know, you were held to a high standard. Um, I've been married since I was 16, and every time I became pregnant, I was talked about, you know, and it was, she's pregnant again, oh my gosh, she, she can't even afford the kids she have, you know, and things like that, and so I began to fast and pray. I was about 24, 25 years old, and I began to ask God, show me yourself, show me myself, show me your power, and um, I kept praying and praying. I built me a prayer closet in my bedroom, and I began to ask those questions over and over and over, and you know, and I'm saying, oh, I'm going to empty myself. I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink. I'm just going to ask this question, and one day I was in the bathroom, and I was getting ready to get dressed, and the room just began to fill up with blood in my mind, and an audible voice came to me and said, this is how quick I can take your life. This is me in your darkest place. And then I began to keep praying and keep praying in my prayer closet, and I felt a hovering, a hugging, like the room was closing in on me. And he says, but I'm going to keep you. Mm. And that gave me a sense of hope and strength, and it allowed me to understand who God was for myself. Instead of being preached at, I was able to learn and go and read the scripture for myself because then I knew who the power of God was. Mm. Thank you, Tambra. Thank you. Who else? What are you What are you coming to from this story this morning? Don spoke last week and what Chuck's saying today about knowing the scriptures. Um, I know a lot of people who quote know the scriptures, meaning that they have little something posted on their refrigerator or they'll see, you know, there's little things. Fact of the matter is you really have to know the scriptures, not just be familiar with some things. You have to know the scriptures. Don't allow things to be taken out of context because God will really speak to you you know, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit will come and remind you of all things I have taught you. He can't remind you of things that you haven't read or heard. So you got to take it, take it all, take it in, and then yield yourself to God. And just like the sister said there, she said, show me myself. Okay, pray, show me my heart. Reveal to me, Lord, if there's any wicked way in me. And you will find tremendous changes happen for you. Thank you, Don. That's good. You know, Darren Cooney, who leads our recovery group on Tuesday night, shared in first hour, he said, don't be overwhelmed or intimidated by the statement you need to know the scriptures or that Jesus would say you don't know the scriptures. Go with what you do know. Don't stop learning. We will never 
any of us have arrived at the pinnacle of knowing the Scriptures, but don't let that stop you from doing what God is telling you to do and use what you do know. That's why I love the idea of learning these stories about Jesus because oftentimes He will give us a chance to share these stories with someone and then we, we just let it do its thing. We don't have to preach. Nobody wants to hear us preach at them, but people will listen to a story about Jesus. And then if, that's, if that is what we know of the Scriptures at the time, we believe that God's Word is alive and active and it will do what He sends it forth to do. Anyone else? I just want to share that for me. Ruth, go ahead. Well, this story takes place between 1940 and 1950. And um, the young lady that spoke in front of me, uh, I also was raised in a Pentecostal church back in Michigan. And... uh, My mother, who knew the Word of God and how important it was for us to learn it, she wouldn't let us go out and play until we learned the scriptures that she had put down for us. And, you know, when you're a young child, you can learn scripture so easily it just absorbs. You don't know what you're saying, actually, when you're young. But I thank my mother for putting the scriptures because now, as an adult, they're still with me. And I thank the Lord that his word is powerful. And as I teach the little ones, I love to teach them scripture and song because they learn the song and they learn the scripture. And one time, my uh, granddaughter was at the airport, Sky Harbor, and she began to sing, do not be afraid, do not be afraid, the Lord is with you. I mean, singing it as loud as she could. So young moms, you want to teach scripture? Put it to a nursery rhyme or a nursery song. God bless. Thank you, Ruth. That's cool. Ruth's daughter was in first service, and she sat right back there. That's cool to hear about that. Experiencing the power of God and knowing the Scriptures, that seemed to be the point that Jesus wanted to make to these Sadducees. Thank you all for sharing. It's been a good morning. We're going to sing another song. If you need to pray, you need to do business with God, Please come up. Somebody will join you and pray with you. And let's just continue our thanks and our worship to the Lord right now.